Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. A quick note before we start today's show. Since recording this interview, Amsterdam University Press has kindly offered a discount code to our listeners. You can go to the Amsterdam University Press store page for Catherine Chan's The Macanese Diaspora in British Hong Kong, A Century of Transimperial Drifting, and input discount code CHAN underscore 25. That is C-H-A-N underscore 25 for a 25% discount on the book. This offer expires on February 28th, 2022. Now, enjoy the rest of the show. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. On Hong Kong's Ice House Street, in the heart of the city's central financial district, is Club Lusitano, one of the city's premier social clubs at the top of an office tower. But the club's roots stretch back over 150 years. Originally set up to serve the colony's burgeoning Portuguese community, including many who hopped over the Pearl River Delta from the Portuguese colony of Macau. It can be hard to remember among the glistening casino lights of modern-day Macau, but the city used to, and still does, host a sizable Macanese community, people of Portuguese or Portuguese-Chinese heritage. As Macau turned into a sleepy, somewhat rigid community in the 19th century, Several Macanese made the jump to look for a better life elsewhere, including in Macau's larger British-run cousin, Hong Kong. Catherine Chan's The Macanese Diaspora in British Hong Kong, A Century of Transimperial Drifting, looks at the Macanese community in Hong Kong and how they settled into life in the British colony. Historian Catherine Chan received her PhD from the University of Bristol and is an assistant professor at the University of Macau. We're joined again by fellow New Books Network host, Sarah Bramal Ramos. Sarah, could I say a few words about yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me back, Nicholas. I am Sarah Brumal Ramos. I'm a PhD candidate at Harvard University, and I am usually over on new books in East Asian studies. Today, the three of us will talk about Hong Kong's Macanese community, what brought them to Hong Kong, the lives they built for themselves, and the niche they filled in the British-run colony. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, perhaps it's best to start with the Macanese community themselves. Who were they? Um, what were their roots? And why did some Macanese choose to move to Hong Kong in the hey, early days of the Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Um, starting with who were the Macanese? Well, it's really hard to find a definite um, definition or explanation to um, cap off who the Macanese were. But um, to summarize it, I would say that uh, many of the Macanese friends that I have, they actually tell me that the Macanese, they're just an imagined community. 
But um, in order to um, make it clearer for everyone um, what the Macanese community was and still is today, well, the Macanese, they're basically Luso-Asians, a group of Luso-Asians that originated from Macau. Um, Concerning their background, many of them um, were Portuguese men who intermarried with women um, from the local communities, or some of these Portuguese who moved to Macau and then intermarried with local communities, they were actually already mixed race people who came from other Portuguese colonies, neighboring Portuguese colonies in Asia. So that's sort of the background to the Macanese is that it's really hard to define who they really are because they are so mixed and they were already so mixed when they first emerged in Macau in 1557 and onwards. So there's really no one definition to tell us who they were. So that's my um, sort of, is that clear enough? No, perfectly. And, and maybe let's kind of shift now to talking about what people thought about the Macanese community. Um, both about Macau, both about people that stayed in Macau, but also about the Macanese that eventually moved to Hong Kong. What were some of the perceptions that Hong Kong people, whether colonial or Chinese, thought about this community? Yeah, maybe then we do have to regress a little bit backwards because I sort of missed out on the second question that he asked earlier. And I've first clarified why they moved to Hong Kong in 1842 and after that. And the reason was that Macau was sort of starting to decay um, from the late 18th century onwards, not to say that it was having economic difficulties because it did not really undergo that um, serious financial difficulty process. But instead, um, there was the problem of urban decay. Portugal um, was not very hands-on with the management of Macau. And Macau was not exactly a formal colony of the Portuguese until at least 1887. And apart from that, Macau was facing its own social problems that included the existence of a Macanese oligarchy that controlled various aspects of Macanese society, including politics, um, economy, um, And that made it hard for many ambitious men and women who wanted to advance in their career or wanted to join the government um, and achieve significant positions to actually get what they wanted. And so when Hong Kong became a colony in 1842, that opened up new possibilities for these Macanese who felt like they were suffocating already in Macau. And so that was why many of them began to move to Hong Kong. And... uh, After Hong Kong became a British colony, many of the companies that were in Canton and also in Macau, they subsequently also transferred to Hong Kong. And so that meant a a lot of opportunities, investments, they were flowing into Hong Kong. And so with that, many Macanese, they entered Hong Kong thinking that this was a new place of opportunities for investment, for career, and it would have better opportunities for their children Um, especially in terms of education. And so when they went to Hong Kong, um, these Macanese began to form their own community. And that, um, in my book, I talk about how that led to the formation of the diversification of the Macanese community, because a new Macanese community that was based in Hong Kong that was starting to become Anglicized was sprouting in Hong Kong. And... Um, the, 
they, they had a different view towards the Macanese in Macau and vice versa. The Macanese in Macau, they saw the Hong Kong Macanese as sort of starting to betray their Portuguese roots. And on the other hand, the Hong Kong Macanese saw the Macanese who were still in Macau or those who had moved from 1880s onwards into Hong Kong as grown-ups, as adults, more as um, they were more like country bumpkins to the Hong Kong Macanese. You were mentioning there, Catherine, opportunities, right? The opportunities that Macanese were seeing in Hong Kong. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of jobs um, the Macanese did when they came to Hong Kong? Yeah, sure. Um, in the most part, um, many of the Macanese who moved to Hong Kong, they served as administrative assistants to the foreign enterprises that were set up in Hong Kong. So they worked as bookkeepers, as clerks. Um, That was really the um, basic um, job position that many Macanese acquired because they were not quite educated in Macau, but they knew how to speak Cantonese. And many of them could write in English. They could speak English pretty well. And so that was why they got those jobs, because back then the Chinese, many of them were yet to understand or to speak the English language, right? But of course, there were Macanese who went to Hong Kong with a little bit more money. They set up their own companies. There was a soda water company. There was a pharmacy that was set up by a Macanese. And many of them were short-lived. There were also um, a number of newspaper companies that were set up. But I think the most successful company um, was a company that was led by a man called Delfino Narania, and that was a printing company. And that printing company would later become the official printer of the British government. When you were writing in your book about um, some of the jobs that the Macanese were doing in Hong Kong, you write about how some of them felt that they were hitting a glass ceiling. They, yes. they really they were dissatisfied with their jobs. They thought they should be moving <laughs> faster further up in their careers. How do you understand this dissatisfaction? Um, When I first read about this dissatisfaction, which of course a lot of people have written about me, them, this this issue before me, um, these works normally talk about this dissatisfaction as sort of um, caused by racial discrimination um, in Hong Kong by the British officials and British businessmen. But from how I saw it, it was really just stiff competition in Hong Kong. I mean, I'm not saying that racial discrimination did not exist in Hong Kong. Okay, so that existed. But from what I saw in the case of, for example, in um, a part of my book in chapter two, I talk about a case of um, a man called Leonardo de Almada e Castro. And Leonardo hit a glass ceiling because um, he wanted to become the colonial secretary of Hong Kong, which was a very prominent position. But he was, first of all, he was a Macanese. He was not British. And he did not have a university or college degree. And so he was not given the position. And the reason that they gave him was that he was an alien. But then it there were other reasons behind that, which was um, there were other candidates that were more suitable for that job. And so that's how I see it. It's really something that we experience on a daily basis. It's something that people in Hong Kong continue to experience today when we see expats, hundreds of them going for one job 
course, the best one would get the job or the one with the best networks, they would get the job, right? Of course. When you were talking as well about the Macanese, you know, they they have this proficiency in Cantonese. So you sort of see them in some of your um, case studies that you look at filling a mediating role in colonial Hong Kong. They're a quasi-elite group that works with the local Hong Kong population, but they are elites. Uh, could you sort of uh, flesh this out a little bit more? What is the sort of middle role that they that they fill in colonial Hong Kong? Right. Um Again, um, I want to use this opportunity to sort of um, allow us to rethink the um, pre-existing perceptions that many have had about the Macanese being sort of intermediaries between the British and the Chinese community. And in my book, I I talk about how... um, the Macanese sort of, they were like a bridge between the Chinese and the British in terms of in offices because they could speak Cantonese. But in reality, they didn't really play that role of an agent because they did not quite communicate with the Chinese community. And usually when we say intermediary, when we say agent, they do have a certain sense of power because they're very close to the native community. And so they go back and forth between the colonizing government and the native community. But that was not what we saw with the Macanese community in Hong Kong. So instead, what I suggest is that um, what I meant when I said intermediary or a bridge was that, well, they were important administrative assistants of the colony. And that's something that we always tend to overlook because we look at these important translators, for example, we look at these important intermediaries who had access to the Chinese underworlds, but then we take for granted that we also need a group of people who are willing to work for lower payments in order to keep the colony running. And that's where the Macanese come in as intermediaries of um, British Hong Kong in, in the early days. And I think that leads into an interesting question about about status and how the Macanese community kind of saw says because you're right they they were kind of in these roles as kind of to because they were willing to accept lower pay willing to do the work um, under conditions that maybe the British did not want to do yet obviously the Macanese still tried to act in ways that increased their success in Hong Kong especially through the process of kind of anglicizing um, and many kind of Macanese people in Hong Kong, as you know, in your book, do try to anglicize. They do try to kind of take on more trappings of the British colonial system. So could you talk a bit more about the process of anglicizing and what that actually meant um, for for a Macanese person to try to become more Anglo? Okay. Um, I think at the end of the day, it first of all has to do with class, because um, to become Anglicized, um, one of the steps to become more Anglo was to join Club Lusitano. And, you know, to join Club Lusitano, you have to have a certain extent of um, wealth, of prestige, of social status and background, right? And so um, class was one of those um, um criteria that was needed in order to become more Anglo. But of course, there are other ways to become Anglicized, such as um, to go to um, an English school to speak good English. Um, And most importantly, I would say um, to be able to network with British elites, British officials. And I think um, that was 
a path, but it was also the aim of for many Macanese to become Anglicized at that time, because becoming Anglicized, that sort of translated to power. And it was a platform to achieve so much more in life and to enter a bourgeois world that was not there before and that was not accessible back in Macau. So it's great that you mentioned Club Lusitano, because that's a segue to my next question. I mean, obviously, Club Lusitano was established to represent the Portuguese community, um, it has a certain relationship with um, with the colonial authorities, a certain relationship with the Portuguese identity. Um, but it's not the only club that purports to represent the Portuguese community. There are many others with other relationships to being Portuguese, to being Macanese. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about these clubs and what role they played within the Macanese community in Hong Kong. Sure. Um, a lot of people would think that Club Lusitano was the first um Portuguese clubs have been formed in Hong Kong. But um, what I found was that, in fact, there was a club that was formed as early as the 1850s called the Clube Portugues. And um, when Club Lusitano was founded around 1865 and formally opened its doors in 1866, the two clubs um, didn't get along well. And that was written all over the newspapers that they disagreed and the Members of Clube Portugues were getting jealous over the um, media coverage that Club Lusitano members were actually getting. And it went as far um, to a, an extent where the governor of Hong Kong and the governor of Macau were asking them to reconcile and to become friends with each other. And that would only happen if my memory serves me right. I think it was in the 1880s that the two clubs would actually merge together and members of Clube Portugues were admitted to Club Lusitano without um, election and without having to pay a fee. Um, I'm not sure what Club Lusitano, um, what Clube Portugues was all about because there's really not a lot left about Clube Portugues, but they did have a library. And what we know is that they donated their books to Club Lusitano afterwards. And after Club Lusitano, um, by the late 19th century, there was another club that was formed called the Club Vasco da Gama, um, which was formed we're not sure if it was formed in opposition to Club Lusitano, but that was the aim of one of the presidents of Club Vasco de Gama, which was to castigate Club Lusitano. And the president of the club even had its own his own newspaper where he would write articles that criticized Club Lusitano for being too uptight, for being too buttoned up, and for being too anglicized and no longer representing the Portuguese community. But after that, I think, um, of course, there's the Club de Recreio, which was a um, recreation club that welcomed um, especially those who lived and had moved to the Kowloon side of Hong Kong after 1900. And it was open to men and women and children um, of all ages, um, as long as you were Macanese. And on chapter five of my book, I talk about this. I a club, a an organization that I think was quite important, but is often um, overlooked 
when it comes to Macanese history, which is the Liga Portuguesa de Hong Kong, the Portuguese League of Hong Kong. And this was probably the um, first group or first organization that was clearly quite nationalistic. And I think it was probably inspired by the global trend of um, imagining new nations, of nationalism that swept across the world in the early 20th century. And this club um, also, it was not exactly in opposition to Club Lusitano, but in its newspapers and magazines, the club was always suggesting that the Portuguese, they need to reconnect with their Portuguese roots. They need to relearn the Portuguese language and become less anglicized. And so all of these clubs, they existed, um, they served their own purposes, and they show us that um, even today, whenever we form a club, we're uniting a group of people, but then at the same time, simultaneously, we are dividing a community because when we unite, we're also sort of suggesting exclusivity in order to establish that new identity. Thinking about identities, um, one of the identities that we sort of see forming in the book, or at least, you know, group of people, community that forms in the book is the Hong Kong born Macanese. So in one of your chapters, you really talk about how the Macanese community uh, sort of uh, shifts a little bit and you have this new group of Macanese. How would you describe the Hong Kong born Macanese and where they fit in with their relationship to Hong Kong and their relationship to, you know, the Macanese in general? The Hong Kong Macanese, um, in my book, I, I use a few case studies such as um, the well-known J.P. Braga. I'm one of the names that's always mentioned when we talk about um, Macanese people who have contributed to the building of British Hong Kong and also um, people like Leo Diamada Castro. Um, one of the things that make them different from other Macanese or those of the um, previous generations were that they began to work with non-Macanese people who were born in Hong Kong. So they began to work basically with people who were like them. They were born in Hong Kong. They were not British. They were not Chinese but they saw Hong Kong as their home because that was where they were raised. That was all they knew, right? And so they began to develop a sense of belonging to this colony. And they eventually, many of them um, went outside to study. Um, Leo de Almada Castro studied um, in uh, the UK. And then when he returned to Hong Kong, he joined the LegCo, the Legislative Council. And so that's that's what makes them different is when you look at their um, participation in the Kowloon Residential um, District Association, their participation in LegCo. And when they're in LegCo, when they join meetings, they don't talk about the Portuguese and Macanese community. And Leo made it very clear in um, one of his one of the meetings that he attended, that he was not there to speak for the Macanese community, but he was there to speak for the Chinese community, who he called as the underdogs of the British colony. So we've kind of hinted here and there about, about the Macanese community's kind of conception of themselves as being Portuguese, which kind of waxes and wanes um, over time. But a couple points in your book that I thought was interesting that you mentioned, first of all, is that um, you note that kind of um, 
almost uniquely among a lot of overseas Portuguese or Portuguese affiliated communities that the Macanese community was definitely had some quite strong pro Salazar tendencies, um, which, which other, let's say Portuguese communities overseas did not. Um, you also know, it was funny kind of in the run up to the, uh, Japanese invasion, um, several of the Macanese community suddenly, uh, let's say discovered their Portuguese roots and were very quickly tried to Portuguese. So it's kind of, I just want to kind of using these kind of two very interesting things I saw in your book as we kind of get into the, in, into the pre second world war period um, and the interwar period um, just kind of asking how the Mackey's community kind of related to being Portuguese or being part of the kind of Portuguese colonial system. Well, what is really interesting about the Macanese is that they're Luso-Asians, but then especially those who lived in Hong Kong, they don't really, they never really connected that much to their Portuguese roots. I mean, I've been to Club Lusitano a few times in the last few years, and one of the members just straight up told me that well, we're, we're very proud to have grown up in British Hong Kong. We see ourselves as British when we need to, and when we need to tell people that, and we use our Portuguese identity when it becomes useful to us. And um, going back to your question of um, nationalism in in the interwar period, um, I think that the the cases of um, nationalistic and patriotic Macanese that I had mentioned in my book, um, that does not represent the many Macanese people who were living in Hong Kong that time. But um, I believe that some of the Macanese who joined Liga Portuguesa de Hong Kong, they were becoming inspired by what they were reading um, with the printed material that the, the League was providing them with, right? And this was a period we're thinking about the Salazar regime where... Um, Propaganda was very prevalent. Propaganda was a tool that Salazar used in order to build his own image and his own um, authority at that time, right? And I think that sort of transported as well to the Portuguese communities that were outside of Portugal. And that's something that I have yet to explore, but I think that's a very interesting point that can be explored. This sense of patriotism that emerged in Hong Kong within a small group of Macanese people that could have been linked to wider developments that were happening in Portugal. So I kind of want to kind of use the Mackey's community as a as a launching point to talk about something a bit larger, um, which is, you know, do you see any parallels elsewhere in the world, either in history or in the present day, to the Mackey's community in Hong Kong? Um, as you note, kind of, you know, quasi-elite, but not quite, reasonably well-established, but not quite, some striving to assimilate, but also kind of complicated relationships with you know, an original identity. Um, what does the Macanese community, or what does studying that community tell us about perhaps other similar immigrant groups or minority groups elsewhere in the world? That's a good question. Um, because 
in the public talks that I've given um, previously, I'd gotten um, some questions from people where they were making um, parallels between the Macanese and other communities. So one of them that I got um, quite out of the blue was um, how I saw uh, if I saw similarities between the Macanese case and that of the Jews, which I really couldn't answer back then at all, and not now even. And recently, I got another question um, about um, comparing the Macanese with mestizos from the Philippines. And I think that made a little bit more sense because, um, well, both mixed race, right, and both existing in um, colonial regimes. But um, I would say that maybe the closest um, parallel that I could think about, and that I also mentioned quite a bit in my book, would be those of the straight Chinese, um, the Peranican Chinese, because the Peranican Chinese, like the Macanese, they sort of, they straddled between different worlds. They were um, navigating the Chinese worlds and they also were very loyal and they stressed their loyalty to the British colonial administration. And many of the straight Chinese, they served in the um, government of, for example, um British Singapore, right? But then they also had relationships to the Chinese government in the 1920s and the 1930s. But then um, I would say that um, in terms of really comparing the Macanese to these communities, the Macanese still stand out in the sense that they um, were quite more discon- they were more disconnected to Portugal than the Chinese, for example, were to China. And while these straight Chinese help with the founding, for example, of a new nationalisms or new identities in Singapore and in Malaysia, the Macanese, they did not play that role in, in Hong Kong and also in Macau. And um, another point that I wanted to add was that um, when I was when you asked me that question, well, the I was thinking that um, quasi elite aside, um, there, the, the other features that you had mentioned, they actually still exist and they apply to each and every one of us today, right? Like we need to survive. And so time and again, well, people, they migrate to other places, they get new passports and they adopt new identities because, well, they, they, need, they need to survive, right? Nicholas said he wanted to think larger, and I'm wondering if we could think larger still. You just mentioned identity, Catherine, and I'm wondering what you hope readers of your book or listeners of this podcast sort of take away from the the example of the Macanese in terms of identity. What do we sort of learn about identity by looking at the Macanese? Um, By looking at the Macanese, One of the lessons that I myself learned after um, studying the Macanese community for um, four or five, almost six years, was that um, if we look at history from the lens of individuals, then we'll find that the same event could have been experienced by 10 people. And then we talk to these 10 people and they have 10 different stories and narratives to tell because when the way that we experience things, the way that we see the world, we apply our own upbringing, our own values, the teachings of our families. We apply um, the experiences that we have every day, right? And so I think um, 
one of the things that I wanted readers to take away from the book was to really, um, as I written in the start of my book, um, it's a book about race, but it looks beyond skin color. And I want us to understand that by looking at history from individual lens, then maybe we can start to appreciate each other as first human beings, because I think with today's um, social media and all that, we already tend to forget that that's what we are first and foremost. We're human beings. We're born to this world. Uh, we're human beings before we were sisters or brothers, or we realize that we're sons or daughters or fathers or mothers or all of those tags, lawyers, teachers, um, clerks, whatever, right? And so I want us to look beyond the surface and to start to appreciate really each other plainly as human beings who have their own baggage. So I want to end the interview by kind of looking to the present day, which is how much of the Macanese community and the Macanese presence kind of still exists in Hong Kong today, or where can you still see it in Hong Kong today? Um... It's hard to tell. Um, I'm sure if, if, if you're in the streets of Hong Kong, you wouldn't really know or you won't be able to tell someone if someone were Macanese just by looking at them because a huge portion of the Macanese community in Hong Kong nowadays, they look quite Chinese. Um, and so I asked this question as well to um, one of my Macanese friends in terms of numbers. Um, could you tell me? how many Macanese are left in Hong Kong? And his answer was, no, I can't tell you that because the Macanese itself is it's an imagined community. And so anyone who wants to be Macanese, they can be Macanese or Macanese people can tell you that I'm not Macanese, but I'm Chinese or I'm British. And so there's really no way to um, measure a, or come up with a particular number. But we can say that um, whoever imagines themselves to still be Macanese today, well, they're Macanese. That will be my answer. <laughs> so I think with that, that ends your interview with Catherine Chan, author of The Macanese Diaspora in Hong Kong, sorry, The Macanese Diaspora in British Hong Kong, A Century of Transimperial Drifting. A couple of final questions for you, Catherine, actually, which is where can people find your work and what's next for you? Um, my book can be bought online. I think there are a couple of stores, um, Amazon, um, in AUP as well, you can um, buy the book. And if you send me an email, um, uh, maybe I can even give you a discount if you're looking to buy the book. Um, what is next for me? I think I'll still be writing um, a couple of papers on the Macanese community, but uh, my new project is on dog raising and the candy drum in Macau. And I've been working on um, recovering the story of um, the first candy drum, which was set up in the 1930s. And um, I've, I've been writing about um, animal rights and um, belated act animal rights activism in Macau. So something so you can. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at NickRIGordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to hviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find council author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Uh, Sarah, where can people find you? 
I am usually over on new books in East Asian studies, and I will bribe Nicholas to put my institutional email somewhere in the show notes so you can find me <laughs> in either of those places. Um, the Interview Books podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Colin Thubrin, author of The Amur River Between Russia and China. But before then, thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today. Thank you.